uh, an instance is broken, it's infected, it's got memory problem, it's got something, you just nuke it. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast that helps you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Jessica Kerr, and I am excited to have the authors of Secure by Design on the show today. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by CircleCI. Designed for modern software teams, CircleCI's continuous integration and delivery platform helps developers push code with confidence. Trusted by thousands of companies, from four-person startups to Fortune 500 businesses, CircleCI helps teams take their software from idea to delivery quickly, safely, and at scale. Visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash CircleCI to learn why high-performing DevOps teams use CircleCI to automate and accelerate their CI-CD pipelines. If you are like most of your friends in DevOps, you probably prefer using open-source solutions for observability. But you also wish you didn't have to sacrifice scalability, performance, and simplicity. With Logs.io, you get the best of both worlds for your cloud environment. You can use the tools you love at the scale you need. Logs.io is a fully managed service that offers complete cloud observability for engineers on one unified platform. Log management and cloud sim based on Elk and infrastructure monitoring based on Grafana. To give it a try for yourself, sign up for a free 14-day trial today at logs.io slash ADO and for your chance to win a free Logs.io t-shirt. The worst thing about the Arrested DevOps podcast is when it ends. You're left wondering what to do next. What are you going to listen to on your commute home? How do you occupy your time when walking the dog? What are you going to listen to during the quarterly all-hands meeting? But fear not, dear listener, there is a solution. You need to subscribe to Software Defined Talk right now. It's a weekly podcast that recaps all the news in cloud computing, DevOps, and enterprise software. The hosts, Kote, Matt Ray, and Brandon Wichard, will keep you up to date on all things cloud while offering tips on how to optimize your Costco haul and how to PowerPoint. It's a fun, free-flowing conversation that will keep you entertained and informed. What are you waiting for? Subscribe to the podcast today by visiting softwaredefinedtalk.com or by searching for Software Defined Talk in your favorite podcast app. Welcome. Dan, Daniel, and Daniel, will you each introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dan Berg-Johnson. Program by heart, interested in security a long time, kind of like agile philosopher guy. That's me. And my name is Dan Dielgen. I'm a coder at heart, craftsman, you know, a guy who loves writing good software and, of course, secure software. And I'm Daniel Sawano, uh, also a developer by heart, but I also go by the name of security engineer sometimes and architect. Y'all are all in Sweden, yeah. right? Yes, in Stockholm. Yeah. Yeah. How? Uh, okay, okay. The book Secure by Design, I invited you on the show because I started reading it and I immediately fell in love with it. I love it because it combines the purposes of security and good software design period. Yeah. And at, that's lovely. Thanks. 
as a developer, I'm like, uh, security. I don't know anything about security. I can't know everything. But yet, what, but yet when you start talking about design, I'm like, oh, as a developer, I must be good at designing. That is my job. Well, and that's kind of a little bit like the backstory for each of us that we always nurtured an interest in that security is important. But a lot of times security comes like a distraction or an afterthought. And when you sit coding and you learn that, oh, and you must also think security first, then you get distracted because I've got this domain model to craft. I've got this code to, to get together. I've got this functionality to wrap my head around. And the nice thing that we've like independently worked with designs and realized that hmm, there's a lot of good designs that kind of come natural to us as as programmer, but which has the interesting side effect that they also prevent security-related bugs, thus giving you an amount of, of security for free to some extent. Come naturally to you as a programmer? Do they come naturally to everyone? Well, it, it kind of depends on what you claim is, is natural, of course. But I, I think that, or we all think that uh, most developers love uh, crafting good software and they love thinking about how to make your, your code beautiful in, in all kinds of ways. And uh, sometimes security isn't thought of as the sort of the natural thing to think about. Uh, but if you choose the right patterns, somehow you get these uh, security benefits sort of implicitly. Uh, and that's what we mean by getting it natural, per se. That yeah, makes I sense. Just, just to add to that, I think once you start to connect the dots and see how the practices that you as a developer and an architect uh, already know and then see how that relates to actually increasing the security of your system. Once you start realizing that, that's, uh, to me, I think will be an aha moment for, for most people. So basically what we've been doing for uh, a few years, so like a better part of a decade, is that as, as developers, while coding, we've been thinking about Hmm, let's see, if I use object orientation in this way, then I actually avoid, um, for example, uh, cross-site scripting to a larger extent. No guarantee, but to a better extent. And then try to, to pick out the design patterns that, that are most powerful. So, for example, we've got one of our major things that Chapter 5 is circling around the concept we call domain primitives. Uh, we make a hardened value object that are really native to your domain and, and guaranteed to be valid. So that's a way of crafting it. And at the end of the day, it's just, just a coding practice. But that also gives you a lot of side effects. So, the, so what, when we say that it comes natural, we mean that as a developer, when you sit and, and craft your day-to-day -day code, thinking about nice designs often feel like, like a natural thing to do. It's like, oh, should I split these objects? Oh, yes, I should. Perhaps I should make it a domain primitive. And then it's just come natural. 
that's what we mean with that design is a more natural mode of thinking for developers in their day-to-day job than security. Security is not as natural in their day-to-day thinking. Oh, yeah, totally. Because for security, I think I'm supposed to think about what what wrong things people are going to do with the system. And I really want to think about the positive experiences that people have with the system. <laughs> um, definitely. Um, and the the domain primitive that you talked about, um, it includes immutability and sometimes like special mechanisms for secure data like passwords so that you only read it once so you don't accidentally print it to the logs. Yes, um, I think that the concepts you mentioned, the, the constraints you put on the object sort of very naturally stems from the object that you think of conceptually. And and this is a very good example of, of where we have taken a lot of inspiration from domain-driven design, as phrased by Eric Evans and become popular through a lot, lot of people, and see the, how the domain focus can actually increase security. During a small period of time, we were talking about domain-driven security also, and we, but we have realized that we, we want to cover a larger, a larger body of knowledge, a larger body of, of, of designs, not just coding patterns, but also architecture, pipelining, DevOps, a lot, lot of stuff. Uh, but it's a good starting point to understand that using domain-driven design not only makes your code more expressive, solves more domain problems, even though these designs were not crafted to, to address security to start with, they've also had that as a side effect. And this is kind of the gems we've found, the designs that also address security issues or mitigate them at least. But but one thing I, I really like about domain primitives is the fact that they make your your code more explicit in in almost every way. Uh, for instance, let's say you are you're, you're accepting a zip code as a parameter to your to your method, and uh, <clears throat> so the the I would say common way to to um, uh, to represent this would be to use a string. But a string is too broad in general uh, because it can fit any kind of character, right? But a zip code is actually well-defined depending on which country you're in, but uh, it it adheres to a certain set of rules. And um, by defining your zip code as a domain primitive, you can suddenly say, oh, uh, my, my input window it's only going to be valid zip codes and nothing else. That means that an attacker can't inject anything except for a valid zip code. Of course, a valid zip code could still do harm, but at least you've now decreased your attack window, so to say, in your application in a very efficient, easy way, so to say. I love that uh, what, what you're recommending in this part is to think harder about what you do want in the system, express that in the code, and suddenly a bunch of the, a bunch of the things that you don't want in the system just aren't. 
Yeah, exactly. And and if you focus, uh, like you said in earlier, Jessica, like when you a developer start thinking about security, you think that you have to think about what's going to go wrong, what potential uh, malicious stuff can happen. But if you focus on what's, what it should do and make sure that your code does only that and nothing else, then you can get these positive side effects. So we, we're kind of twisting it around. We're looking at the same problem, solving the same problem, but we're twisting it around and presenting it in a way that hopefully is more approachable by developers. And I'd like to point out that this is not only about how you craft your code, the kind of coding practice is just one small part of, of uh, secure by design. I, I think it's the part which is most accessible for developers to start with. But I think it's important to point out that there's so many other like good designs or good working habits that also have the same side effect. For example, uh, Daniel Daniel mentioned mentioned that we craft code that only does what you intended to. And of course, that could be expressed in the way you craft your uh, test suite. So that's another way of, of doing it. That we also dive into that. How can you think as a developer in ways of designing your test suite? Like you're doing test-driven development, then you often focus on the positive tests that push your code to do stuff and it becomes more broad and more potent. But you also want that restriction that you also write the text tests that limit your, your code, make it less potent so that you can't sneak in those pesky attack strings, for example. So test design is also part of it. And then obviously, you get into the pipelining, et cetera, et cetera. In the testing, I noticed you talked about four different levels of testing. Um, you did not include property-based testing or generative testing. Was there a reason for that? Well, that, that, that is a good question. Um, of course, we discussed this various types of, of tests that we could include. And the and uh, we sort of came down with the these four uh, different kinds that we talk about in the book of, of normal boundary uh, and uh, of course uh, uh, invalid and, and extreme input testing and we figured that well we, we could write almost an entire book about various different types of tests and, and how you should, should go about it and, and this was sort of the the top four we came came down with but I think your question is, is interesting in another way. I mean, as we have been three of us writing a book, we've had a, a very tough regime on ourselves that we we should only include things where which is based on on our collective experience and 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 more, almost evidence based uh, because there's so many good designs and good ideas and security and, and, and as Daniel uh, mentioned we could have written like an entire library of books so we also, we also put the regime on us that we should be very intellectually honest that we should only talk about stuff that, that we have among us like a heavy <laughs> 
have experience on that. Yes, we have done this. Yes, we have seen the benefits. That makes sense. So, so property-based testing, I think, is an excellent idea. Please do it. But, <laughs> but it's, yeah. it, but it's not our experience that we have done it extensively and can and can stand for saying that yes, this is something that we have. So, secure by design covers a lot of stuff with other people's experiences that are not in the book. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, when I saw some of the strings in the invalid input testing, like the, um, the. Chinese characters and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I see that when I do property tests because it makes strings of anything. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, can see, I can see material for a thread of blog post coming up here. <laughs> please, <laughs> please just get right to the blog post on it and mention that I think this has should be in the book. But uh, sweet, <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, Swedish to put it in there. Yeah. Just because they had done it. Second edition. Yeah, yeah exactly. Second. You have to leave the material for the second edition, right? Isn't that <laughs> as an author you have to do it? Right? <laughs> there you go. But 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 you you have a, a good point here because uh, the part where most people are not yet using property tests makes it harder that there's an extra barrier for them to start using that isn't necessary to just test invalid input, text test extra character sets test yeah. strings that are entirely too long not oh, just to see whether the invariants are upheld but whether it completes at all yeah. yes you, you want to see that poor parser like crumble to dust and, <laughs> and, and say i'm not doing this any longer i just give up go home and kill the process right right and you want right. to, and you want that to happen on your build machine exactly not in production and I usually find it so interesting that when you work with, let's say, junior developers, and they they're really proud of their regular expression, of course, right? That they you know crafted <laughs> it so well, and then you write a test and say, "Whoops, I just you know I just killed it for you," and that's because they didn't do a length check before that, and and you're like, "Well, that's not a you know that's not a name or whatever it is," and I, I say, "Well, I know, but as an attacker, you can of course do this." And, Right, you didn't stop me from entering the entire text of Shakespeare. <laughs> and, and I think that's that's an interesting part. I think this is one of, 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 of the English favorite phrasing that I proudly steal right now because we've written it together also that I we as programmers, we often, if you look at a, a method signature, it says string name as a one of the parameters, then we as programmers focus on the name of the variable. Oh, this is a surname. So thus, we will test things that are name or name-ish. But an attacker, they focus on the type. They see what can fit into this box. And they will get the entire Shakespeare uh, as one big string, and they send it in and, well, the system comes crumbling down. But and, and, and using the scientists kind of reduce this gap to to say that no, we, we do not only look at what we tend to do, but we also try to close um, close the opening by, by making the, the window of what you can actually fit there smaller. It's very right. much to the spot. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 careful definition of what do I mean when I say a name and then defining it with its own type instead of um, 
what do you call it, an anemic domain model of a string. Yeah, because like Java is, you know, stringly typed. Mm-hmm. Everything yeah. is a string. Yeah. We've, see, we've seen those systems where, where, where you have a st- type system, but you only use the string class. <laughs> and then you open it. Yeah, yeah. Up. Okay, all data is a string. It is possible to write a system that is completely stringly type, typed and is safe. It's just that it tends to be so much easier and more robust if you start defining uh, your own domain types instead. Uh, I think there, Daniel, you, you, you put the finger on something that's really important. It's possible to do something with, you know, just using strings, but it's so much easier to do it the other way and more precise, so to say. And, and, and when, when I think about that, I always go like, wow, this is, this is really how I like to craft code. I, I think also we can t- take that property and lift it over to something else, which is not code. For example, architecture, DevOps, deploy uh, artifacts. It, of course, it's possible to build a system in which you make your builds mutable, deploy them onto to a lot of servers, and then like configure and mutate them until they are kind of safe-ish. <laughs> kind of safe-ish? <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> We're on a DevOps podcast. Now. But of yeah. course, it's much easier if you actually make your builds immutable. Because there's less risk for mistakes. So still, and this is, I think, very important, still no guarantee. But by making your builds immutable, which to us a desi- is a, a, a DevOps design, you avoid 95% of common mistakes, which is pretty good for us. Is that kind of fun when, when you... When, when you create an immutable build, you start realizing, well, we don't need to be able to use SSH to to log into the to the artifact. Mm. And so, why do we need a, an SSH daemon on there? Well, we don't. And you can remove rip it that. out. Yeah. And, and suddenly, it becomes impossible to use that as an entry point, right? Or why do you need any? I don't know man pages in your OS. <laughs> you can reduce the size of your, your artifact that way. I mean, there, there's so many things you can start doing when, when, you're, when your build is immutable. Uh, the, 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 uh, when I think about it, it becomes, it becomes almost you know, obvious that you should do it. Oh, yeah. Everything obvious wasn't always. Uh, to, to muse on onto that theme, for example... We, of course, we need to SSH onto our, our our machines because how should we otherwise be able to access the logs? Oh, yeah. I believe you all have something to say about logging in this book. Yeah. So let's design it in another way. Let's ensure that following the 12-factor uh, uh, app guidelines, Ensure that logs are sent to centralized logging as a service in your in our architecture. Now, there's no need to log onto the machine to save the logs. You can actually, if uh, an instance is broken, 
it's infected, it's got memory problem, it's got something. You just nuke it without any 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 regrets whatsoever. And if you can do that, then there's no need to have a sage client or server uh, running on the on the on the instance. So so Jess, you mentioned logging. Is that a part that you sort of favor in this? Oh well, like I'm. I haven't read all of the parts on logging yet, but I'm a little scared. So I wanted to ask you, <laughs> uh, like I, as a developer, want all the information I can get in order to debug problems. But yet, um, your book recommends never log data that hasn't passed the validations. Mm-hmm. So, so how? Do, I mean, how do you figure out what happened? Right, right. So, so th- this is a very tricky topic, I think. And, and I mean, we, we write about logging a lot uh, in, in various different aspects. Uh, and, and I would say uh, one thing that, that's very important is that you should never, you know, if you, if you log input directly into your logs, it becomes a an attack surface for, let's say, second-order injection attacks, which allows an attacker to basically exploit a weakness in a second system that processes the logs, for instance, right? Um, it could be, for instance, that your, your application doesn't care about uh, some JavaScript that gets uh, that sent as input, whereas the log tool that processes the log it has a weakness and uh, that uh, javascript oh. exploits that right oh so like you go to view your log in your log viewer right. and that's a web app and that mm-hmm. executes the javascript and, and that log- like sends something out and the log viewer is probably run by the sysadmin and the privileges of the sysadmin is probably pretty high, and they're probably running it inside the DMZ. So it's a perfect launchpad for doing a really, really hard, yeah. hard attack on inside wow. your system. Yeah, and of course you could say that, well, the, the admin log viewer tool, they should be coding securely and treat the log input as malicious, potentially malicious, but it's all about... And of course they should. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's all about you know, security in depth. Uh, if you can avoid it, just try not to log it. And, and there's more than just malicious data nowadays. If, if you dump everything into your logs, then your logs might end up containing uh, you know personal information. And then you have to think about data retention policies and all those uh, very fun regulations that you have to think about. So you Right. I really problems, don't so. want to make my logs like radioactive with personal information. No, no right. that's a Pandora's box to open. Yeah. And, and that's also one of the things we point out that if you're doing this kind of like logging as a service, which is a design patterns to some extent, then it opens up a lot of security benefits. For example, then you can split your logs into several log sinks. One of them being audit logs, which contains information on who accessed what data, which in Europe is extremely heavily regulated with the GDPR. Or you can have 
metric data going somewhere else, or you can have uh, error data going to a third place. So using this design opens up a lot of good stuff for security. Uh, and, and also, just to get back to your original question there, should, how should you know what happened and so on, right? I mean, you could, in, at least in, in theory, you could have one uh, log that's radioactive in, its, in itself, uh, saying that this is all input and that this should not be opened, you know, unless it's in a safe environment, right? Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Um, but but I think the uh, the common mistake that many developers do is that they more or less dump input uh, blindly uh, and also uh, sort of uses implicit uh, serialization of of uh, of objects. Let's say you're you're fetching something from a database and uh, then you just want to see what data did I get, right? And you you dump that. Uh, and if you use a, I don't know, your favorite logging framework, uh, and it has, you know, debug, info, warning, and so on, and you, you put the log level to, to debug, but then you wanted to see this in production as well, right? And, uh, well, debug is turned off in production, so you have to raise the level. And then you start getting into some deep problems, because now you suddenly you know, dump everything into your logs and you have no idea what's what's in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that can be a mess. And you didn't expect debug logging to be on in production, so you didn't really, you weren't as careful with that. And Right, right. So, so you, you probably, because you first put it as debug and then you realize that, wait a minute, in production we don't have debug, so you raise it to info or some other mm. level that's higher. And then you forget it. And it's there mm. and, you know, yeah. We have this illusion that logging is simple, mm -hmm. and it isn't. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think yeah. to put that in, in perspective, I think it's important to see that the facet that Daniel was just talking about, that often when we think about that we design a system, we design it at a point of time. We have all the wisdom and, and, and knowledge of the system at that point of time. But that is never the case. A system is evolved during long periods of times where the knowledge of the developers who were in the, uh, in the system a few years ago and those that are now might not necessarily overlap. The, 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 the insights might even be disjoint. So that poor uh, log.info that I've up there, it has been forgotten because Developers may cycled out and no one remembers it. And no one has even a chance to remember it. Same thing with the domain models that slowly evolve or architecture that slowly evolve. And suddenly you have done something that is a little bit incompatible with something that was done a few years ago. And then in the glitch between those two decisions, we end up with uh, security weaknesses. And I think that perspective, that, that things are evolving over time, that I know that you're, you're big on semantics here, that we learn of the system and the system learns from us, but also that that knowledge is also uh, fragile. Uh, 
so that we also forgot about each other. The system forgot about these developers and developers forgot, uh, forget about parts <laughs> of the system. Well, yeah, if we're learning, we're necessarily constantly forgetting too. And, and, and taken over time, that will end up with something that is not necessarily consistent. And that's the kind of consistent, and, and the inconsistency will manifest as security weaknesses. Right. Potentially, at least. Yeah, and that's you... the kind of things we try to avoid by applying good designs. You define security as four different areas. One of them is integrity. And and that's what, what the inconsistencies violate. M- most often, yes. Uh, I think you're referring to the classical information security CIA triad. Uh, yes, but it's a it's a it's a triad with four, right? Yeah, <laughs> the confidentiality, which is what we most of often think about security, uh, things that are secret should be kept secret. Integrity that things should not change unless they should change in a specific way. Availability that things should be available when needed, like nine uh, eleven. Uh, and also the fourth that haven't got a really good name, but which is something around, well, you should kind of keep track of who watched or changed what, like some oh, kind of trace, traceability or non-repudiation or... That's that auditability, yeah. Yeah. And and, and, and that's the kind of, of, uh, of uh, mindset or, or a framework that we've had in our mind. when we If we say that something actually address a security issue, then we should be able to link back to these classical security concerns and say that this is something that actually increases availability. Thus, right. it addresses a security concern. Thus, we can claim it's a right. secure like, design. Like the dumping the works of Shakespeare into the text field and that's going through someone's regular expression and everything dies. Uh, that's that's not exposing confidential information, but it is violating availability. Yes, that would open up a DDoS attack or, or just a DOS attack and, and would be able to take a system offline at a, some kind of critical uh, uh, timing. Right. Yeah, that is the trick that's, that attackers do. They find a spot of the system, system of systems, and then when they're trying to attack system A, they know that system A is dependent on system B. And then they nuke system B, making it unavailable. And then they attack system A. And, well, if A and B are not designed with this laddish crash, self-recover, self-healing, anti-fragile mindset, then they will probably expose some kind of inconsistency and, and that could be exploited. Yeah, and I think the availability part uh, can usually be um, somewhat hard to grasp for developers if they don't have a security background. Because usually if you're a developer, you think about availability, you think about, you know, you need to be scalable when you go viral and earn tons of money, right? But it actually is a security concern as well. Since this is a DevOps podcast, I should ask you more DevOpsy things. Ooh, ooh, one of the phrases that you used in, I think it was a chapter title, was talking about the benefits of cloud thinking. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Thanks for giving it. That's the buzzword. 
How no, does cloud but thinking help? Yes. No, I, it's basically the same thing where we go around and collect design ideas from other areas and find that they also have a secure benefit. Like domain-driven design, we ended up with the domain primitives. And for DevOps, well, you have got all these stuff, the immutable builds that we mentioned earlier, uh, to be able to do rolling deploys, uh, to be able to scale up and down, to design your your uh, things so that they are stateless, so that you can easily rotate the cluster. And that opens up a surprising amount of... of uh, security-related stuff. And I think with Daniel, Daniel has, has personally implemented the systems that do wonderful things around that area. But, but one thing I, I find so, so interesting about the, that particular chapter is that a lot of the design concepts that we bring up that are you know, necessary for, for a cloud environment turn out to be fully applicable in a non-cloud environment. Uh, and people tend not to use them simply because of, I don't know, laziness or like, why should we? We only have, you know, one database and the IP is always the same or, you know, we never change our, our password except once and, well, it works and so on. I'd like to jump on that one. Just think about that scenario for a small amount of time. You've got a production database. It has got a username and a password. When was that password changed last time? How long ago was that password changed? A month? Well, probably not. Months? Years? I mean, we know a system that has had the same passwords for decades. Oh, my first apartment complex, the, the gate code was 1984, because that's when the apartment complex was built. Excellent. Of course. And, and we've got production databases with the same. So every single operation personnel that has left the job since 1984 knows the database, uh, production database password. It's, might that be a security risk? Perhaps. So, so can, can we in some way design a system so that it would be able to change the pace, database password, perhaps during runtime, perhaps once a quarter, or once a month, or once an hour, or perhaps once every second minute? And, or and randomly. Randomly, or you want to handing out one-time passwords. And, and the interesting thing is, like Daniel said, that if you're using these like immutable builds, externalize configurations, uh, making things rolling deploy possible, then you can do that. There's you things can... that the cloud makes strictly necessary that yes. don't seem so necessary in um, apps that are not in the cloud, but there's still a good idea. And now that we have all these cloud apps, we have ways of doing those things. Yes. Uh, if you're not doing it in a cloud environment, then you're basically <laughs> like toast. <laughs> then you actually have to pay extra to have those IP addresses locked down. Oh, right. So it becomes more natural in a cloud environment. 
But as David pointed out, all these things can be done on-prem as well. Yeah, and they're still a good idea. Yeah, and the the cloud environment, uh, regardless if you're running a private cloud or you're up in the public cloud, uh, the environment will give you the tools, right? But then in order to be effective and, and tie everything together, you need to start automating stuff. And that's really where the, the operations part of it comes in, right? Uh, you need to, every business is unique in some ways. You need uh, really the DevOps concept need to uh, step up and then start thinking about these uh, security aspects as well. So if, if you want to go, if you're, let's say you're operating on, on a massive scale and you want to start rotating secrets to the left and to the right, you, you can't do that manually. Even if you have the tools in the platform, you really need to start working with automation and 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 uh, blur the lines between developers and, and uh, operations. Or developers, yeah, yeah. And, and blur the lines between what people do and what code does. And move anything you want done consistently into code. Yeah, so in a way, we're instructing the system to become more intelligent. And when we see that, uh, we, we, we take the, the problems that we see, the, perhaps the security problems that we see, and we put that back to our, us as developers. As, as Daniel pointed out, you, you probably start with trying to, to do a lot of these stuff well, perhaps not completely manual, but semi-automatically. But you get pushed into doing everything more and more automatically by as the days go by. So the system is not just the code that executes the business logic. The system is also all the tooling you got, all the instructing you got around your runtime environments, your auditing, your alarms. Your, they're all part of the, the design of a system that's alive in some way. I also think it's so interesting that once you have tried going full infrastructure as code, but everything is scripted, it, it's so hard to go back and create snowflakes that you can't tear down the system and just with a push of a button, things are just rebuilt. And <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely. Yeah, it's I so strange. Yeah. yeah, I can't even install anything on my laptop anymore. I'm like, nope, that's going in a Docker container. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes yeah, you realize that a lot, a lot of it, like production environments, especially, they are, are a result of some kind of like almost liturgic tradition of, of one system administrator handing over the system to the other, and they, each of them has put their hands on it in some quasi-magical ways. And if you say that, can't we just nuke it and start over? People go, oh, no, we don't know what could be forgotten. But that sounds so much more sanitary than passing it back and forth. Yeah. That's right. Especially <laughs> during these days. <laughs> exactly. Um, and and that's so, so. We just talked about how when you get used to infrastructure as code and disposable um, runtimes, that starts to come naturally. And yeah. back at the beginning, we talked about the the coding style coming naturally, which it's not going to for everyone. But that's because we haven't all read the book yet. Right, yeah. but I think there's uh, Daniel 
told me about has been working with a lot of junior developers. And and some of them are now coming like they like have few years of experience. Uh, and they sit in discussion and, and talk to them and they talk about how they like do their infrastructures code and, and and sometimes you me, the dinosaur, say that, well, not all systems are designed like that. And they look at me and say, <laughs> like, why not? It's obvious now. Oh, yeah, it's obvious true. now. So I think it's got a really good point about not 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 only is it uh, that it's hard for us to go back, but also for the new generation, it's it's Eastern new natural. Yeah, right. I think it's also important to remember if if someone picks up the book and read about all these good ideas, uh, but if your current environment is nowhere near that, then you have to understand that it will be a gradual process to do this. You're probably not going to be able to just jump from from A to Z, for example, you have you have to take take it step by step, uh, and it will probably take you a very long time. So, um, just to set the the expectations right. Now, can you do that in the course of your normal work? Well, it, it sort of depends. I think um, I I usually try to think of this as you know. Um, almost like refactoring, so to say, right? Um, you use refactoring to clean up your code and make it nicer and nicer. And some of these design patterns could be that, well, you introduce something small, right? So maybe you start scripting one tiny bit of your of your pipeline or something, and you add tiny, tiny bits here and there, and you sort of get buy-in from the from your your uh, your team or your organization or whatever it is, and eventually you will be able to sort of turn your system into something that, that that's better, hopefully. It also depends on what you mean with a normal operation. I mean, if your normal operation is that you have got some kind of product owners that only shuffle uh, new functionality to the team. And you've got middle managers that watch over the, the every keystroke the programmers do. And you have no mandate to take any uh, any time off to do quality stuff without having it properly processed and prioritized in the big almighty backlog that business has to have their eyes on. Well, if that is normal operation, I would say, no, you cannot. You might be able to do a little bit of like skank work here and there, but you will never get very far. So I think it's important that the, the organization understands that this is a larger thing that we will need to do over time. So you get acceptance from the, and the, that the product owners see that security's work is actually something that provides a security concern benefit on my system, but it's valuable that the system is available, uh, in, has got integrity, has got this confidentiality and follows the, the traceability regulations that, that are regulated on it. Because if they do not, you will have very limited success. So I think many organizations also have that that. 
to actually make the organization understand that security concerns are actually business uh, benefits. And in that mode of operation, yes, if that is your normal operation, then it's possible. I like the part where um, the things like the domain primitives, if, for instance, as you're, you're working on a problem, you choose to introduce a domain primitive. Oh, I just can't handle passing the username as a string one more time. I must make a class for it. And then the book talks about how you can build those up slowly and as you're working, just trend toward the use of domain primitives. And the the most beautiful part of that for me was how as you do that, you're not just asking, um, you're, you're not asking, how can I represent a username in code? You're asking, do I understand the essence of what is a username? Yeah, that, that, that really is the key. I mean, if, if you don't truly understand what your system is supposed to do, how could you possibly build it? Right. So it, that's where it all starts. Uh, too many systems, I think, have been built by people making assumptions about what the system should do. And that tend to be the source of a lot of bugs. And a lot of bugs tend to be security bugs as well. So it, it all starts with understanding what you're trying to solve and what it actually is you're trying to achieve. I also think that we as developers are often a little bit too shy. That we say, oh, I don't really understand what a password really is. It's okay to ask. And you go over to domain experts, perhaps not by password, but whatever it is, some concept in domain, you ask, what, what, what is this? What are the limitations? How big it can be? How small it can be? And all these stupid questions. And we feel stupid because obviously there are simple answers to these questions. And I think that there is, that is not often the case. Often our questions actually push the domain experts into deepening their own understanding about what they are actually handling. And if we do not push those questions, they do not get that kind of like intellectual force feed <laughs> that makes them think another way and say, oh, perhaps that's not how we should phrase it. Perhaps, no, we should phrase it this way. So I think the cooperation between between the intellectual cooperation between domain experts and developers are crucial. And and if yeah. it becomes a one-way street, it kind of loses all its charm. And sometimes it's also that, you know, first as a developers developer, you think of this as a you know from a technical perspective. And uh, you, you, you're you so certain that it's supposed to be in a certain way. But then when you start talking to the domain experts, you start realizing, like, wait a minute. So this is why we need to do it differently. Because, you know, this is sort of the, the business side of it. And then you have to come up with a different technical solution to, to, to support that business need. And... So for me, at least, it, it, that, that's a, uh, a very beautiful uh, moment in your in your in your career when you start to realizing that, wait a minute, I'm 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 not just doing this for for uh, 
for fun or for you know being technical and beautiful it, it also has to solve a a concrete business problem yeah and like dan mentioned uh, like this co- collaboration between developers and the business side is is really to me where a lot of the magic happens because when you start asking these questions, a lot of times the business side isn't really sure what they mean when they say, for example, user. Uh, they, they may use the u- term user everywhere when they're describing their system, but when you go to the uh, the finance department and ask them what a user is for them, they're going to give you an explanation, and then you go to the marketing department and ask them what a user is, and they're going to come up with a totally different explanation. And you're not going to figure that out without this collaboration. And usually it's, it's valuable for the entire organization, not just for the technical side. Yeah, because the code, when you have to put it in the code, that imposes a rigor. Exactly. And, can, and yeah. if you don't do that, you're going to have a user that is a little bit of everything, which opens up for bugs. Probably a lot of strings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, sometimes yeah, we're... Sometimes we described it as, as the difference between being able to uh, ride a bicycle, which all of us can do, because we can get on a bicycle on a case-by-case basis and just ride it. And uh, there's a turn, and there's, so we just ride it. And there's a huge difference between that one and to program a bicycle-riding robot, because that's what we do as developers. Right. The business side, they can manage the business. They can answer every single question on a case-by-case basis by just doing some judgment call, call of judgment. But what we need to do is to build something that anticipates every single possible situation and handles it in a sensible way. So the kind of understanding you need for bicycling, if you're going to buy the, build a, a robot... It's much deeper. And that kind of deep understanding is not possible if you do not combine both the technical aspects and the business aspects and make these two uh, sides learn from each other, learn jointly to to develop an understanding of of what is the user, sales, finance, doing, actually doing, because we're going to write a system that does it. I think we've just invented DevSec biz ops. <laughs> I, I like Definitely. that term. I like Definitely. it. I like it. Yes. I second that. Okay. We need awesome. a manifesto. <laughs> oh no, oh no. Oh no, oh no. Let's yes, just stick with your book. Your book is great. Uh, uh. <laughs> okay. So it's time to wrap up now. Thank you, Dan, Daniel, and Daniel for joining us. Um, thank you for our listeners um, go to arresteddevops.com slash secure by design I think I'll put some dashes in between those words and you'll be able to find the show notes including where to find the book and more from the authors and finally I'm Jessica Kerr Jessatron on Twitter and remember there's always DevOps in the banana stand in a banana stand